Welcome to another edition of Asbury Pod with your host, Amy Quinn. I am unpaid intern Ed, sitting in this week for Joe Walsh, and today we are speaking with Kathy Kelly, owner-operator of the Paranormal Books and Curiosity Shop here in Asbury Park, and one of the driving forces behind the amazing Asbury Park Dinner Table Program. The matters addressed in this podcast represent my own personal views and opinions concerning issues affecting the citizens of Asbury Park in my capacity as the Deputy Mayor of the City of Asbury Park. They do not necessarily represent the official position of the city or the official position of the Asbury Park City Council as a whole. I am developing and implementing this podcast in an effort to keep citizens informed. However, this is not an official City of Asbury Park podcast and does not, and I repeat, does not represent the official position of the city or the governing body. So welcome to Asbury Pod, everybody. It's April 1st, 2020. We are on day what of the, I don't even know what day of the quarantine we're on. Oh, the quarantine's over. You didn't hear? That's just. Well, it is April. And we were told that this was all going to magically go away in April. Right. Well, that was my poor attempt at an April Fool's joke, Amy. Huzzah! Huzzah! (laughs) I'm unpaid Ed, by the way. Unpaid and, intern Ed. Yep, Joe's not. Joe's taking care of some family things tonight, so he's not with us. But um, we are thinking about him. We are thinking about him. I have spent are. my day on the phone with people who have short or their real estate agents who have short term rented for April, fleeing wherever they mainly New York. Wherever they came from, and, and you know, for those of you all listening, by the time this airs, you, you'll hopefully have known. But we, as of today, have banned short-term rentals for the month of April because you know we don't need people coming here when you know for two or three weeks when our police is stretched thin, our fire is stretched thin, our EMT is stretched thin, our DPW is stretched thin. Like the, the last thing Asbury needs right now is more people. Um. But that didn't go over well. So imagine not. Right. It goes over well with me, Amy, because I, uh, my wife and I were in the. Not get COVID nineteen, right? Correct on that. We're residents, so we would like that. But we also, I have, and I can show it to you. I have the short-term rental permit on the desk behind me because we have an apartment in our house that we wanted. We were having a hard time getting a year-round tenant, so we said, "Let's roll the dice here and apply for the permit." This was about three weeks ago. And because my driver's license did not have my current address, I couldn't file the permit. I was waiting to get my real ID, which is a whole different kettle of fish. And then long story short, we ended up finding a full-time tenant um, shortly after that. And then today we saw that the short-term rental, you know, would cancel. Well, we dodged a bullet. If we had signed up for and paid for the short-term rental permit, you know, we wouldn't have been able to use it at least for for a couple months. So, Yeah. And then the other thing is, is like I'm doing a lot of these news programs because more isn't like tech savvy. So I get like a call from him. He's like Channel 12 in 10 minutes. 
And, you know, and I haven't showered or done anything. So that 10 minutes is, is crucial in, in getting my wife to set up my little tech stuff so I can actually do whatever program he's yelling that I got to go do. So I say all of that to say, we are joined today by Kathy Kelly. Hello. Hello. Hello, Kathy. Hello. You're going to talk about a, a number of things, one of which, and I think I said this on the last program. So this, ex- I've never had an experience. I don't know that any of us have ever been in a pandemic before. So this has been like a super interesting experience for me. And um, I think when we interviewed Garrett, the OEM director, I said like 90% of people have been really amazing and patient and had great ideas and had great feedback. Um, and then 10% have been, you know, hard hard. Um, But one of the people and one of the groups of people that have been amazing is the Esbury Park Dinner Club, which we're going to get to, um, which was Kathy Kelly's idea and a great group of people, Joe, Julie, Allie, who are working on it. So we wanted to bring Kathy to all of you since um, you all have nothing else to do but listen to this podcast. (laughs) So um, we're going to start in our usual way, Kathy. What brought you to Asbury? You know, you know what brought me to Asbury Park was I had sent an email to Jen Hampton at um, at Asbury Lanes in 2006, and I got no response. And in 2007, because it had a reputation for being haunted, in 2007, she responded to me and said, hey, I just found this email in my junk file. Um, yeah, we... I'm sorry. Did you know her? I had no, no, I had no idea okay. who she was. Um, and so she said, I do think we have spirits here, but I want to know if you come and do a ghost hunt, will you hurt them? And I was like, nobody has ever asked me that before in all of the things that I've ever done. And I thought it was really cute. And we came out, um, we didn't, we did an investigation. We had a great time with so much fun. And she said to me, you know, you need to be here. This is where you need to be. And I was like, well, what does that mean? And, and she was like, I don't know, figure it out, but you need to be here. And within six months, I had found a place, signed a lease and opened because Jen Hampton told me to be here. So she was the one that brought me here. One, she's been on our show. And two, obviously, you know, I think she's also amazing. Right. And how did you know to even was she she was in Asbury at that time? She was in Asbury Park. They had just uh, the lanes had kind of just converted from in like 2004, 2005. Um, I, I was from North Jersey and I was just kind of, you know, I was doing a lot of different historical research things and I always do it through these paranormal things. And um, it just sounded like a cool place to go. And I'd heard, you know, there, it had a reputation as being kind of a funky dive place where people claim that there were spirits. So I, I will say she had that way of making it seem like it was kismet. Like, and I was at a point in my life, and I think I think this is something that happens in Asbury Park. You find Asbury Park when you're ready to find Asbury Park. And then it finds something in you. And it's like, click, that's it. And so I both appreciate that she did it, and I blame her for it, you know, so every once in a while. But um, she... She actually ended up taking me to a Chamber of Commerce um, meeting at the Paramount Theater. And when I went in and I was on the stage at the Paramount Theater, I was just like, that's it. Wrap this up. I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll buy it. I'm coming. And um, I opened, I opened in, uh, Friday the 13th of June in 2008 on Cookman. Wow. 
Um, I think Jen is like so good for this town. I think she's like such a breath of fresh air in this town. So tell us about the shop that you opened. So I opened a shop called Paranormal Books and Curiosities, and it was it, it is a bookstore. Um, it's primarily a bookstore, but it's kind of grown into uh, a lot of different things. We do history tours. We do ghost tours. We do ghost investigations. We have psychics. But we also have something called the Paranormal Museum. Um, because now we occupy a full building on Cookman Avenue, which I think is, I, I actually think it's the only one of its kind in the world. Um, and we have upwards of 300 artifacts that are either from haunted locations or are purported to be haunted themselves or related to other kind of fringe phenomena. Um, we get, I mean, up until... <laughs> Up until a couple of weeks ago, we were selling out every weekend um, and we do lectures, we do um, workshops, we do all manner of different things. Um, it's mostly historical, but it's definitely it's definitely through a paranormal or a fringe lens. And when you so when you're talking about like you procure these artifacts like what is what what does that mean like take me through that process so there's there's really three different ways that we get artifacts the primary way is through donation so somebody will have something that has been a part of their family for years and years and years they feel uncomfortable with it they don't want it destroyed they'll bring it to me and if they bring it to me they'll say, usually they'll say this is making my children feel uncomfortable or we think there's something attached to it, something associated with it. Invariably, you know, do I do I think that they're right? I don't know. I, I try to look at it from the perspective of listening to their story and then seeing if I can validate their experiences and tell their story. Um, we also have artifacts that come to us from historic locations so that we can tell the story of the historic location. So, for instance, we have a brick from... Um, a lunatic asylum on the island of Paveglia off the coast of a plague island, actually, off the coast of Venice in Italy. It's a phenomenal story. It's a really important story to tell. Um, and we get to have this great, cool artifact. I've also had artifacts that were donated to me from the FBI, from um, police, the police officers. And then we have... Um, we have things that we will acquire, meaning I'll, I'll, I'll go out and purchase them if I think that they're worth having. Most of those are equipment related. So it's a way of showing how people have experienced um, spiritualism and um, or spiritism, I should say, and the paranormal through, you know, the last three or 400 years. So different pieces of equipment, different things that people thought were paranormal in nature. And the cool thing about that is that you can see how things have moved from paranormal into accepted, uh, you know, into either accepted science or into kind of accepted phenomena. Kathy, is, is there an example of something like that, that, that has sort of transitioned from purely fantastical into a, into well, a science? You know, usually I'm when you talk emergency call, so you guys are going to stay on this <laughs> and I'll be right back. Usually when we're talking about things that have translated, it's stuff like um, chemical stuff. Right. So okay. um, things where or or medical things, um, for instance, um, I have a I have a piece of cloth that has um but this is going to sound gross, but a lot of paranormal is gross, you know, but it's, a, but that has say a stain from someone who had stigmata. So, you know, stigmata 
is still accepted by people of faith as being miraculous. But we have also learned so much in the last 150 years about psychology that we understand that human beings have the ability to manipulate their physicality um, so that that they can actually cause things like that to happen to their own bodies. And that, I think, is where we're talking about that liminal space between what was paranormal and what we now accept as not being paranormal. It's certainly not normal, but it's not supernatural in, you know, in in, in its in its full condition. Sure, bringing um, a, little, a little more credence to, you know, what has historically been a complete unknown now has a little bit of a basis. In- right. You know, and when you look at like in the early part, uh, in the early t- times of, say, paranormal research in the 1890s, to the 1910s, William James who was one of the greatest minds America has ever produced um, and who led uh, who started the school of um, of uh, uh, in, in um, I'm sorry, in Harvard, who started the school of psychology in Harvard. He actually was the first president of the American Society for Psychical Research. But what he was studying was not necessarily what we would consider paranormal today. He moved it from the paranormal into understood psychology. And I think that that's something that's interesting about paranormal is the more you study, the less there is of it. You know what I mean? Because it leads us to understanding. I have a question somewhat related to that. I have two questions. One is the best section of the Paramount Theater for a good paranormal experience. The dressing rooms. Interesting. Dressing rooms, definitely. I saw that. I I watched the episode of Kindred Spirits that was just on. And having been in the Paramount, my wife and I got married there um, uh, five and a half years ago. So we, Jason had given us kind of the tour. Right. And we, I don't know that we had gotten to that section. Uh, He showed us the dressing rooms, but I don't know that we got to see the ones that. The one in the back. Yeah. Yeah, The one in the back. That one is out there. It's, and you know, here's the thing about that particular show. And, and, and this is what people get up in arms when you kind of can't successfully historically validate their stories, right? People have experiences. You then find something in history and say, oh, that sounds like that. So let's put these two things together. If the history doesn't support what people are experiencing, it doesn't mean they're not experiencing it. It just means you haven't found the cause of that yet. In the Paramount, the cool thing about the Paramount is, if you go to the dressing rooms, you definitely will feel something. There's definitely something unusual about a specific space. But if you're standing on that stage, and in fact, they caught what we would consider to be pretty good evidence as a paranormal investigator. You think that's pretty good evidence. They caught what, what we call a shadow figure, which very closely correlates with to what people experience when they're standing on the stage. And of all the places that people come to me um, every every single year and talk to me about um, the Paramount Theater, um, standing on the stage, performers come all the time and talk to me about it. Um, and the boardwalk itself. And you, you remember, there's those two shipwrecks that that took place there. Um, so there's, I think wherever you have, a, you know, a lot of people congregating and living lives, people kind of feel that in the ether, they feel a little bit of the history there. But uh, yeah, if I were to pick one place in the Paramount where I was going to lock Amy to see so that she would have a, an experience, it would definitely be that back dressing room. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, and then can I do one only related to this? One other question was, uh, and this is from Joe Potter, was if you could go inside any structure or building anywhere, where would it be and why? 
I would go into the White House. Um, you know, I, I would if I I would I would say two things. I would either go to the Vatican because that's just got to be crazy. Right. I mean, there just has to be crazy stuff there. But I would love to go to the White House because it is so truly steeped in 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 history. I mean, you know, maybe not this year, you know, maybe, maybe I would wait to go to the oh, white house for a couple of years. There's but, history um, happening in the white yeah, house exactly. right now. Maybe I don't want this one, but there are so many stories of hauntings related to, to the white house. Um, and they're, they're related to presidents who took their job seriously and who were facing very, very difficult times who looked back into the history of their office to find, um, to find some kind of solace or guidance. And there's so many stories that they did. And I just think that, that it's such an emblem of our country and our nation and it has such a great reputation for being haunted. I, I would love to spend some time in there, you know, obviously when nobody else is there, but I would love to, I would love to spend some time there. So Kathy, how, I, do you, I mean, do you travel for investigations? Where have I you do. been? Or what, what's the, so the most interesting in in October, I went to Romania and I spent uh, two weeks in Transylvania. Um, it was awesome. I highly, highly recommend when all of this is over, go to Transylvania. It is so unexpected. You have no idea what it's like. It is, it is beautiful and bucolic and, and the, 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 the cities are stunning and it's medieval and it was never bombed and it's inexpensive and they love Americans. And you know what I mean? It's all of those things. Um, I don't know if they love Americans, but they certainly like us. Right. Um, um, I, and that place was really great. I did a lunatic asylum in Prague and that was very compelling because of the kind of the f evidence that we got from it and the fact that it was still an active asylum and they still called it a lunatic asylum. And um, people were in it. Like, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know what? what yeah. I'm sure we could find a kinder way to say that, but but that's I think that was what was interesting about it was that it was still called that. Like in the United States, last year I, I went to three lunatic asylums last year in the U.S. You know, um, most those are all abandoned, um, or they're operating as they claim to be operating as mental health museums, but they're really operating for par as for paranormal tourism. I mean, it's 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 a huge industry, and. Um, and and so so they're very interesting because they're we don't we don't have these kind of facilities anymore, but in Prague, um, it was actually a beautiful place. But they did call it a lunatic asylum, and they would refer to the patients as lunatics, you know. And it was it it, it was a I it was eye opening to see it from that perspective. The words that they used were very offensive, but the way they behaved wasn't. You know what I mean? They were very kind of very careful about um, about their patients. Um, they had these little villages for them based on the the level of of um, autonomy that they could have, and it was it was kind of you know, I mean, there were people with dementia who were in the lunatic asylum, and they had these little dementia villages where people would go to the sh you know they would have shops for them um, that weren't really shops, but to keep them kind of keep them kind of going. But there was a whole section of it that. Um, was no longer in operation and they claim it was no longer in operation because of the spirits that were there. Um, and I do have to say, I had a, we, you know, there was, there were a couple of moments where it was, um, 
disarming to, you know, where, where you're standing alone. And, and in this particular place, there was a, a cemetery, a very large cemetery um, that hasn't been used probably since World War II. Um, and you're standing out there in the dark and you're in this, you know, you're in an area that's a lunatic asylum, but you're really out away from the city. Um, and you're like, what in the hell am I doing here? You know, like, like, what, what am I, why am I out in the middle of the woods in the dark night? And then you have an experience and it, it does, you know, there's an excitement to it. And there's this kind of moment of, um, I don't know, like the world, the world just seems a little bit bigger. Maybe, maybe, maybe we seem a little, a little less um, mortal, you know, that if something can exist beyond this, that, that when, and when you do investigations, that's something that kind of, you have that experience where you think, wow, maybe there is something more to this. You know, maybe, maybe we do last a little bit longer than, than we think. So, and I, and I put myself in those positions all the time. And I like, so, with the, so this is interesting to me. Cause like, if you seek it out, are you still scared when it happens? No, but you can't get startled though. I mean, and I will say if somebody grabs your ass, it doesn't matter whether they're living or dead. It's uncomfortable. You know what I mean? Um, and also it is uncomfortable to have an experience that you, where you don't see the cause of it. Um, I, and, and I will tell you, it's very subtle. And I'll give you an example. So I'm standing in the, um, in the woods in this, um, you know, abandoned lunatic asylum cemetery that I flew thousands of miles to go to. I mean, I, I knew what I was getting into. There's no lights. There's ivy co covering the ground. And I'm standing there and I have, you know, I have a camera and I have a recorder and I have a, all the bells and whistles, right? And... I'm there with about five, I think there were five of us all together. So four other people, two of them were in front of me and two of them were to my right. And we're kind of congregating in the middle and it's so dark. It is so dark. You can't believe how dark it is. And there's this canopy of 300 year old trees that are just closing out the night sky. And there's no light. Um, there's no light pollution. There's nothing like that. And there's a wind that's kind of blowing through it. And I can feel someone leaning over my left shoulder. And I'm assuming it's one of the five other people. And I'm like, kind of like, uh, hello, I'm here. You know, like you're in my space. And I look over and I see all of them where they were. And yet every part of my being believed one of them had moved and was standing on the left-hand side. Now you can say, well, you just, you know, you just misconstrued that. But when you're in that moment and you're so hyper aware, you know, when you feel someone near you and you know, when you feel them kind of invading your space and it's stuff like that, you know, it's stuff like that, that, that starts to kind of um, make, push the door open. It doesn't, it doesn't prove anything. It's not proof, but it does kind of give you a little bit, of evidence that you put into a pile. And then, you know, the pile becomes, you know, at some point the pile becomes a tipping point and you believe one thing or you believe another. And and sometimes it resets, you know, when you start all over again. And how, how have you been making out during this pandemic? Well, I have, I, you know, I closed paranormal um, immediately. I, I just was like, what am I, you know, what, nobody needs paranormal books. Nobody, you know, nobody, my staff did, didn't need to be, um, I, I didn't want to put them at risk. Um, and so 
I have essentially just decided that we're on hiatus. I still do all my podcasts. I'm still writing. I'm still, you know, talking to people online and things like that, but I'm not actively promoting paranormal. Um, and you're not doing any of the seances or any of that. Oh no, 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 no. Um, and, and it's, it's, there's just not a place to me. It's just not the time for that just yet, you know? Um, and so I, you know, I, I kind of shifted to the net, you know, to another gear and have just been involved with the, um, Asbury park dinner table. All right. Tell us all things Asbury park dinner. So Asbury park dinner table, I, I think it's a, um, a really simple concept, right. And it's all about synergy and it, it kind of all worked out. It, it kind of all worked out that way as well. I, I was just wondering what I could do to help. And I, and I started to think that it would be an ideal situation um, would be to figure out a way to help the people who we knew were going to be needy because they were not going to, um, they were, you know, they're going to lose their jobs or, or they were going to be underemployed or anything or lots, you know, anybody moving in that direction and also find a way to keep cash flow coming into some of our businesses. And in Asbury Park, whether you like it or you don't like it, you know, hospitality is our primary business. Hospitality, real estate, those are those are primary businesses in Asbury Park. And they're the engines that kind of fuel everything. And so I, I had spent a lot of time as a waitress and I knew how hard it was going to be that, you know, a lot of times you get all of your meals at work and 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 two or three days can be the difference between, you know, living high and having not thing. And um, I just started thinking, what if there was a way that I could sell gift cards at Paranormal, but instead of using them, instead of buying my books, you would be buying them from me and I would buy a meal for somebody and the cash flow could go directly to um, the business. And then I started thinking, well, why do I need to be in the middle of that? So maybe we could just promote and, and get people to buy these gift cards and the restaurants could then, you know, make the meals and give them to whomever needed it. Um, and that's when I reached out to Joe and Julie and, and um, I just said, Hey, I think I actually, ta- I think I spoke to you too, Amy. And you were like, I don't know what I know. I like it, but I'm not, you know, but you had a lot going on. So you were, yeah, yeah no, like, I, I haven't had a chance about. to think about it. I love the I idea like of the concept. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times like that week I was like, I love everything you're saying, but I don't have the ability <laughs> to process this because, you know, there's 17 people waiting for me to right. back. Right. And I think that was the case for a lot of people. And when, and I, I can't say that I had it fully formed at all. Um, and I reached out to Joe and to Julie and I said, hey, what do you think about this? And to be honest with you, they picked up the ball and they ran with it. And within within three or four days, um, we had shifted so many times um, to 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 where you know originally we were we were going to try and get we uh, we didn't know um, what we didn't know on the thirteenth, the fourteenth, the fifteenth. Because I think on the fifteenth is when you guys put the ten o'clock. Um, curfew into place which was which was sunday and i mean by by tuesday that was it was eight you know i mean everything was moving very very quickly um but we got together and for for us as well you know that's what i mean it was really moving fast for you like you decided to do the state of emergency you know Saturday night, we were a little, Garrett was going, you know, we, people were driving around. Oh, it was terrible on Saturday night. Saturday. So Saturday night, we, we were like, oh my God, we have got, I, we have got to shut this down. No one 
No one in Asbury Park was. No, there. it was it was like a it was like a Roman orgy. I mean, it was it was it was absurd. And then on Sunday, so so we were still kind of talking, but at that point we were like, this is going to work. Something we we we've whatever we're doing here, it's going to happen. And so we reached out to. Um, I had talked to the Asbury Park Business Committee. I talked to Bianca I talk, and everybody was super supportive. Um, I talked to Russell and Russell. Russell had already closed his restaurant, but really was was like, I like this. Let, let's see where it goes. And he um, closed, he closed on Sunday after right. people not, you know, respecting the social. No, he just was like, that's it. My my the first thing he said to me was the my only concern is my staff's health. That was it. So um, we we we. Uh, Ended up, we ended up uh, working with three churches um, that had volunteers that were going to be able to create a distribution center, distribution uh, areas for us. We had so many restaurants that came on board. And the idea was we were not going to hunt for the lowest price because the idea was to help the restaurants as well as feed meals. So we essentially said we, we have $10 per meal price point. What can you give us for that? And some of them said, I can do a regular menu, $10. Some of them said, I can scale back and do these things. Um, and then ultimately there were Modine specific. There's so, so many of them were so important early on. Cardinal was so important early on. Moga was so important. Um, Modine came in and she essentially said, listen, we're shifting gears and we're going into, you know, assistance. And so she changed the menu that she was making so that she would be able to make larger numbers of meals at a lower price point. Um, the first day, I, the first, our, our first meals were delivered on that Thursday. Um, and we delivered a hundred, 98 meals. We delivered that day. Yesterday we delivered 420. Yeah. Just so people have the time frame. So I believe Sunday was the 15th where we, right. so it was the 19th. So the 19th. And also I'm just going to give a shout out to, um, former, uh, Lieutenant governor. Yes. Yes. That's right. We had a, a big conference call meeting and she, you know, she laid it down. In. I mean, it right. positioned a little bit towards getting um, the kids in Esbury Park fed in conjunction with the school district and their families. But um, she was an early on all in to help with the idea as well. But I have to say that the minute we announced it, the minute we said, hey, guys, this is what we're doing. It, it, there was a huge influx. And what was to me, what was really cool about it was there were there were were essentially three ways for restaurants to participate. One, they could, because, because, um, because the former Lieutenant governor had said, Hey, if you have restaurants that want to work with us at fulfill, I'll get them into the rotation. So the people who were able to produce larger amounts of food at a, at a lower price point, that made sense for them. Um, because they could, you know, their margins were lower and they, they could make bulk and that worked for them. Um, so we were able to connect them with her and, and that worked. Then there was direct donations, which is you're in San Francisco, but you love Mogo and Mogo sent out an email and you called Mogo up or you went online and you bought $40 worth of meals for your Asbury Park neighbor. And then they managed their own funds. It was cash flow for them. They managed their own funds and they, they, every single day. And I, to, right now I still do this. I speak to every single restaurant every morning before eight o'clock. And I, how many meals do, do, do you have to give, which is how many direct donations did you get? They'll tell me. Um, and then I'd say, okay, we, now we're managing a fund of money that's come in through our Facebook page. How much, um, 
you know, I would like to buy X number of meals from you. And what we're really trying to do is we want to get the most meals out, but this would be incomplete if the restaurants did not also benefit. You know, they're, they're, it has to work for both parties. And so what we found is that most restaurants are so behind the idea of it and so invested in doing it that they're really working to get direct donations. So when I, when I get a meal from them, oftentimes I'll get two because they'll say, we have you covered from another direct donation. Um, and so it's the first week, I think we got something like 250 individual donations. And most of them were from people who worked in restaurants in Asbury Park. I mean, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the people hardest hit were the ones that wanted to rise the boats. You know what I mean? They were the ones that were making the initial donations. And then we got what we called were our angel donors, who were people who came with larger funds um, and uh, were able to sustain us um, so that we could we added two further distribution centers. One of the things was we realized that as time went by, um, there were going to be more and more people who were part of the workforce in Asbury Park, in the restaurant um, communities that were not going to be, they weren't going to have work for, for very long and that they might not be as familiar with where to access resources to help them um, as somebody else might be. And so we, we created other distribution points um, that would kind of allow people to go to different, different areas of Asbury Park where they might be more comfortable or by, they might be more familiar um, to pick up meals. And we have definitely seen, you know, we've definitely seen more people going to different areas. Um, we also um, provide meals to the Boys and Girls Club to supplement um, the meals that they get from other, uh, from other donors. And so, so Kathy, like, how does this work? So, so I, Amy Quinn want to, um, I, you know, want to, want to grab a bite from the Esbury Park Dinner Club. Right. I would go to, let's say I go to 906 Sewell. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. I go to 906 Sewell. I, I walk in, I say my name, like. No, you don't have to say anything. You know, we're not, we're not, you know, we're not checking IDs. We, we're not, um, you know, we're not, uh. You walk in and say, I'm hungry and I, I, I'd like a meal. And I, um, then you take one and you can take up to four. Um, and there like, are different options. Like, do, like, do I pick like from Modine's vote? You know, no, usually what will happen is um, I try to rotate it because people don't go to different um, distribution centers. So if you're commonly going to say second Baptist, that's, that's where you're going to go. That's your, that's your distribution center. So I try to make sure that you're not getting the same food every single day. And because I have to rotate the restaurants so that they can all participate as well. Um, there is enough, um, there's enough to kind of keep people, you know, where they're not getting the same food every single day. Um, I, I should also say we've been getting a lot of food donations and uh, Salt Hotels has been pull, putting those together um, to make large quantities of, a, of, of very, um, like very densely nutritious soup that we're able to supplement our meals with as well. Um, Kula um, Cafe has donated some, uh, some um, greens. We had a fantastic donation. This is what's so cool is the whole idea of this was that if you made a donation, you weren't only helping one group. You know what I mean? Like, like your donation was going to have like a double whammy. Um, and then we had somebody who came in um, from Grown in Monmouth and 
he had a hundred pounds of root vegetables and greens. And he said, Hey, you guys think you could do something with this? And I was like, yeah, I think we could do something with that. Um, and we asked him, do you have a farm? Is that, you know, is this, is this the goods from your farm? And he said, no, but I buy from this farm down the street and I don't want them to go out of business. So I bought everything they harvested wow. this week, and I'm donating it. And I, you know, I, I, I get, I find that moving. I find that really, really compelling that the, the investment in the community is so great that people are finding ways to help each other. And the other thing is, is, you know, I'm, uh, uh, um, Allie and, and Julie and Joe, uh, they're, they're such an amazing and dynamic team and, and their organizational skills are phenomenal, but we've done everything. We've never been in the same room together. Like we have never sat in the same room since we started doing all of this. And I probably talk to them, you know, 10 times a day. But when we talk about being in isolation, I've never felt more connected to my community than I do this week. I have, I have, I have numbers in my phone. I've been here for 13 years. I have numbers in my phone now that I never had before. And I have people that, you know, lift me up every day um, that I may have only known in passing or not known at all. So to me, this has really been kind of eye opening as to what the definition of community really is. And it's also, I feel like, started an effort, you know, in different. Well, first of all, let me say from the mayor and council, because John, John Moore is like, can you call me? And I'm like, I'm doing this podcast. And first of all, when he's texting, I get concerned because he's not a texter. So I'm immediately like, oh, shit, if he's texting, something is wrong. Um, and I said, I'm doing this podcast with you. And he said, uh, please, thank you from him. So thank you sincerely from John Moore and honestly, the entire council and truly the entire city. Yeah, um, Thank you, guys. Yeah. But what I think is so great and and like I talk a little bit about like the 90% of people who've just been amazing. Like, I think this idea has kind of spawned other people to do kind of cool shit and, and take what is a really horrific, horrific situation and try to figure out some way to make it slightly better for people. Yeah, I think I think the one awesome thing about this is, you know, I mean, you know that I'm the idea person. I'm always peppering you and you're always like, slow down. <laughs> Let's see, you know, go with one idea first. I'm always looking for how can I leverage this to something else? It's just the way my brain works. And I'm, I'm, and I'm a retailer, so I'm desperately trying to figure out ways. How does retail fit with this? How can we promote? How can we do all of these other things? And the truth is everybody else has kind of figured that out as well. So we have people who are doing, um, you know, we had, we had Russell hosted um, a yoga. Uh, I did it. Did you? Yeah, you did it. I know I did do it. Are you kidding me? I, I did not, well, not only did I did it, but I did it via the video and a lot of people did it. And like, I felt like the whole purpose is for us to be on this video together doing yoga. Not that I'm amazing at yoga, but uh, people are like you right now with their picture. And I was like, I was like the people who had their picture that I know, I was like, you know, the whole idea is for you to see. <laughs> yeah. But it was funny though. I mean, I did watch it. I didn't, I didn't, but I mean, I was also, so on Saturdays we do a double 
so that we can have Sunday off to, to kind of reassess and set up for, so we still want to deliver food on Sunday, but we want to make sure. So, so usually Saturdays are really busy because we're, we're doing twice as much to get it out for Sunday, but that's a really creative kind of fundraiser that we did. And then there's a concert series. There's somebody's doing a, um, Chris Brown. So yeah, Chris, you know, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. He checked so cool. day and he's like, listen, I'm going to help to do a fundraiser for, as for Perk Dinner Club, like a virtual, you know, right. longtime musician. Uh, here's a fun fact: his mother was my um, midwife who delivered my. Son. Really? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> see, but see, like, so I've got, but I will tell you, I have gotten calls from all over New Jersey from other communities that want to do this, and they're like, "How do we do this?" And and you know what the answer is: you just do it. Absolutely. Like, and, like, and your I, point I thought was so right. Like I know I didn't know what I didn't know Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Right. So the following week, I'm going to fine tune this and make this more effective, which I can say like the council's doing this as well. Like we we're like, we're wh- whatever it is we're doing. We, we try to figure out like, okay, so now I know that, you know, shit's going even more awry. Right. So we need to take this step or now we see, you know, I, I get I get what you're saying with that because I didn't know what I didn't know a week ago and now I feel like I know a tremendous amount more and would have done things differently a week ago. Right. And you know what I learned and I and I was I was pleasant I was surprised that that this was true and upset with myself that I that I was surprised by it was how many people are doing shit behind the scenes to help other people that you don't even know about. Like when we all sat down and had, when we all got on that phone, everybody that we were, I I talked to about 30 people that for those first five or six days. And every single one of them said, wait, did you talk to so-and-so because they're doing something like this too? Or wait, this person is already doing this. Maybe you can. And every person that I picked up the phone and called were like, yeah, let me help you with that. And there were so many people already doing stuff that I think when you're on the outside of this, you have this idea of bureaucracy and they're just sitting up there waiting and not doing anything. And then when you're, when you get behind the curtain, you realize now every, almost, you know, every single person here cares and every single person is trying to make a positive difference. And, and in this particular case, in something, none of us have any idea you know, none of us have ever been in a pandemic before. None of us have ever had this kind of a, you know, it's not like Sandy where it's like, Hey, Amy, or, you know, you don't have any broken legs. Let's go out and build a house. You know, we can't do that. And so I was, I was surprised at how many people were already doing the heavy lifting of helping others, but I was really moved by how willing to help me. They were, they still were, you know, and yeah. And one thing that was so near and dear to me and, and it was, so my, my son goes to Bradley and one thing over the summer, last summer, Bradley provides, uh, the Asbury Park school district provides school, uh, food for kids over the summer. Right. Um, because we have a, a large po- you know, we have a high poverty rate in Asbury Park. And so when we were all on that conference call and you could, you know, figure out and, and Kim wants to, to work with you guys, but also not just feed Brown bag, the kids in Asbury, but wants to send them home with three meals so they can right. feed their mother, father and grandmother, right. Whoever their mother, mother and grandmother, their father, you know, whatever makes up their family. Like, like it was, it was so, it just melts, it, it melts my heart and makes me, when I think I can't love Asbury Park anymore, I love Asbury Park more. 
And, you know, I remember that moment because it was it was from everybody. Everybody was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You shove it in there. You put it in their backpack. You don't make it a big deal. Like like the idea was not um, if I get this X amount of money and I get I can make this X amount of meals. And then it, it, it wasn't like that. It was like there's a kid at the end of this. There's a, you know, there's an empty belly at the end of this. And, and there was a true, um, a true concern for that. And how, and, and how can we mitigate all of that? And, and, you know, you have this idea of, of, and I'm going to say, you know, bureaucrats and bureaucracy and politicians and all of this stuff. You have this idea that they're sitting there looking at spreadsheets. And let me tell you something. I'm looking at spreadsheets every single day now. And I haven't looked at a spreadsheet in 13 years. But I'm looking at spreadsheets every day. But that's not what people are really looking at. They're looking at, um, you know, how do we get how do we get this food to the people who need it? And there's multiple people who need it. There's lots of different there's lots of different groups of people. I will tell you what I was startled by was before we even got started, we, we knew that we were going to do meals on um, pasta. Vola was like one of the first ones to come on board. And, and, and the reason why they came on board so early is they're just designed for this. Pasta Volo and Mogo are machines, right? They're just designed to do this. And I will tell you, Sam from Mogo has been like, you know, another arm. He's just been phenomenal. Um, but the idea, you know, they came on very, very early and um, I kind of forgot what I was talking about, but um, even they had this need to like, they, they kept finding ways to lower their prices so we could make more and more, you know? Um, and one of the things that we realized was that um, people had lost their jobs Saturday night, Amy, when, when Saturday night, when, when you guys closed the restaurants early on Sunday, some people, they had done their last ship, their last shift the night before, and they didn't know it. You know what I mean? So we were going in on Thursday. We knew that we were going to have meals on Thursday and we were like, wow, if we get a hundred meals, that'd be awesome. So we knew we were going to do that. We got a message from somebody online who essentially said, and I'm not going to use any names because I'm sure there's 50 people like this, um, who said, Saturday night was my last shift. I've been let go. I have $3 in my, this was on Wednesday. I have $3 in my bank account and I have not eaten since Monday night. That's the time frame between, between full-time job, you know, and poverty for some people. And, and the other interesting thing is, and I'm not saying our restaurants aren't crowded in, 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 on the weekends, but it's not like summer. No, you're not taking home $800 a night. No, but you're getting fed in March. Right. But you're getting fed. So right. like, that's something that you don't, but that, that the, the thing about working in a restaurant and I, and I think it's kind of like theater or being in a band or something like that. You feel like you've gone to war. You feel like you're part of a, a. You feel like you're part of a unit, and there is this kind of this family mentality because every night you go out, it's stressful. People treat you like shit, and you're tired. Your feet hurt, and you're you know you're fighting over a five dollar tip or whatever. But at the end of the day, it's your team, and and when that team is sent home, you're not part of that team anymore, but you're also not getting fed the family meal every night, and and you're not getting you know in every restaurant I've ever worked in, people had a shift meal, you know, it might, it might be half price or whatever, but you, you knew what you were getting, you, you know, um, and that's important to people and they count on it. And I think, 
you know, if Asbury, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not a restaurateur, but I do think food is very personal and I think it's very emotional. And um, I think the idea that every single restaurant that we work with, yes, they love the cash flow, but that's, I got to tell you, that's not why they're doing it. You know, they're, they're really not, they're coming in and they're doing it because they want to help their community. And, um, you know, they've all been amazing. So the other interesting thing with this pandemic, like as opposed to, and I wasn't on the council during Sandy, but the interesting thing with Sandy was the event happened and then you start rebuilding, right? Right. You start getting loans and grants and and Habitat for Humanity comes in and, and helps. And with this, it's so... I don't know if you can short-term rent at the end of April. I don't right. know short-term rent. I don't know if you can open up in May. I I, I don't have a clue. I, I, I'm terrified by the numbers I see on the TV. I do think too, like I remember talking to you about this and talking to everybody else about this is, you know, by the 15th and 16th of March, it was here, right? I mean, we didn't, it, we, we were acting as if we were waiting for it to get here, but but this pandemic was not like waiting for a storm to happen or waiting for an army to get here. It was like swimming with sharks below the surface. They were already there. And so, you know, there were people who were probably already infected on the 17th, the 18th, the 19th. So, so how we resolve that, you know, like, like we, we keep talking about these things as if we, we know what the future is and right. I don't think we do, you know. The lack of an end date, and I'll, I'll just speak for myself personally, is is befuddling to me that I can't just be like, of course Memorial Day, right? Back to normal. Of course, you know we're going to, you know, be, be begging people to come to town and eat out and shop and see a movie and check out art or whatever. But I, I, I don't, I don't, I honestly have no idea. I'm I do, th- I do think one of the things that we have to stress though, and I think that we need to stress it personally and because every every business per, every business in Asbury Park is is an advocate for Asbury Park and an ambassador for Asbury Park and almost every business owner that I know they're the face of their business we're we're definitely a community of personality and i just think that it's very very important and i stress this to people who contact me even when they're just contacting me from the Asbury Park business community um, committee is we have to be positive. You can't let your social media become um, another space where our customers and our guests, who we do want to come back in August or September or hopefully June, um, where it's just another space of you know sadness and misery. And and I think that the Asbury Park dinner table has created this goodwill story. You know that kind of it, it's 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 this great. I, to, to be honest with you, I think it is who Asbury Park is. This is who we are, you know, and it's it's not just like a, a an anthem. It 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 truly is. I have people who send me texts who are like, I know you're not in the store, but I just dropped a you know I just dropped a big check off in your, you know, in your mailbox. You know, they're walking over because they don't want to use the mail, but they'll walk over, you know. So and what do you need? What what does what the Esbury Park Dinner Club need right now? So what we just we need donors. I mean, we need to keep the ball rolling, right? Because every meal that we have is um, 
you know, every meal is attached to, to a donation. So while the small donations are awesome and they're incredibly effective, um, we do need, you know, we do need some larger donations to come. We need some more angels to come through just to give us a little breathing space so that we know that we have another week and another week and another week after that. Um, I would, you know, I don't know when the funding is going to, is going to, you know, I, I, I can't say that. I, I, I don't know when that's going to dry up or whatever. I mean, I, I know that we're, we're still getting donors all the time. Um, and I started, I start stepped up to the plate on this. Yes, one. they did. Um, yeah. I started, did, I mean, and then there, and there were other people too, and there have been donors who have, you know, who have just said, I don't, I don't want my name out there. I don't want this to be, I don't want, I don't want to detract from, from, uh, what's happening there. And I will tell you food donations as well. Um, sharing, you know, creating a larger social media footprint for us helps too. So if you don't have a penny, but you can just share it, that's really important. Um, I just, you know, I guess just, just spreading the word and, and hope to me, to me, it's, this is all about being hopeful, you know? And, and I, I look at like all of this stuff as an investment in hope and, um, I also, you know, this has been kind of like a life preserver for me because I'm not in my shop. I'm not doing what I do, you know, so to be able to kind of reinvest in something that is having a positive impact um, has been really important. And I, for me, I know it's been important for, for Joe and Julie and for Allie, who honestly work tirelessly. I mean, they're up, sometimes I'll get texts and it's like, that's four o'clock in the morning. And we're, we're, we're just thinking that way. Um, but also um, the restaurants. I mean, I, I can't say enough about this, how, how much this community has, has come to this cause and, and, and has um, just invested themselves in it. I think that, uh, listen, I think it's amazing. I think you guys have done a, a really amazing job. My son is going to be home in nine minutes, Kathy, and I'm always looking for more lesbian content in this. <laughs> That's why you brought me on. So go. <laughs> so, right. Cause I have Joe and Ed who are not at all up on lesbian. <laughs> um, okay. Did you come out in the nineties? Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah. Okay. And was that unpleasant? Um, you know, it was less unpleasant than I thought it was going to be. And it was, I will say that it was harder for me than I think it was for other people, you know, than, than the people that I came out to. I think it was harder for me to come out to myself and, 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 um, open up to them about what I had been hiding really not well for a long, long time. <laughs> yeah, like, not not all. We're not hiding it well. It's like, thank you for removing all doubt. That was essentially when I came out. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Favorite lesbian movie. Oh, you know what? I was thinking about this the other night and now I can't think of it. What's the one with Gina Gershon and that's such a good movie. Oh, it's amazing. So, so it's such a good movie. That's one of those ones where you're like, now I know. <laughs> oh, totally. 100%. Right. So I'm in college at Pace University downtown. I think I've told this story a ton of times. So whoever's heard it, just you should really, or people who don't care about lesbian content, you should probably turn off now. But I went to go see that movie at the 23rd theater in Manhattan so much that I essentially had to drop <laughs> my classes. <laughs> I saw Peter Gershon and Jennifer Tilly and I was like, I, I love you both. Oh my God. I'm just going to stay in this theater 
for days and rewatched this movie over and over again. And it was a good movie too, though. I mean, it was Great it was movie. shockingly good movie. You know, it was such a good movie. I went to see Showgirls because of that, and I will never Ooh. forgive Gina Gershon for that. Like Ooh. that's that's my scary movie is Showgirls. Why are we putting Showgirls down. Showgirls is terrible. It's in a great time. way. In a fun way. In a fun yeah. fun way. It holds it holds up as a great terrible movie. Yeah, yeah, the scariest movie and I ever saw. I right. will say, what is her name? The the one with the curly hair. People always say I look like, and I'm forgetting her Elizabeth name. Elizabeth Berkeley. Yes. Yeah, make what you will of that. Like a toll booth collector and a Dunkin' Donuts person once said to me, are you Elizabeth Berkeley? Berkeley? And both times I said yes. <laughs> yes. May I have a free coffee? <laughs> yes, I will take that with extra cream. Thank you. Okay. Favorite lesbian character of all time? Like real or... Either. Like, I mean, to be honest with you, I go, I, I, I'm a, I mean, I, I love Virginia Woolf. I think she's one of the greatest, uh, and she's a real person, I think. But having read both her, um, having read her biography and the, the biography of Vita Sackville West, which, by the way, I'm going to encourage every woman, every lesbian out there to read it, um, their relationship was, was you, there, let's I, just I say like I saw a movie about them. Did I see a movie about them? Well, she did Orlando. She did the movie Orlando, uh, okay. which is about her relationship with her. And maybe, I mean, she might have done Vita, but I think Virginia Woolf is, is because I think a lot of women can identify with that, especially when you start thinking about what you want in life and what you want of yourself. You know what I mean? And did you watch the new season of the L word? I did not. And I know that would upset you. Um, I will binge it at some point. I saw a little bit. I saw a little bit of it, but I, I you know, we're not going to get representation unless we watch representation. Oh, no, I get it. But I, I, I got to be honest with you. I at you. I got I have to say I have to say um, I did see it. I don't think the new crop was particular. Yeah, they were kind of not that interesting to me. Um, yeah, the old crop still was. No, but that's the old crop. That's, yeah. And who was yeah. your favorite Elward character? You watched you watched the previous. Yeah, time. of course. I liked Shane. I did like Shane. But that but then again, I was 90s because, yeah. you know, I when you come out in the 90s, Shane Shane was like the badass, you know. But then again, Carmen. I mean, Carmen was yeah, she was know, adorable. Absolutely. Holy moly. Holy moly. Uh lesbian book? Or would that be Virginia Woolf? Um, it would be Vita. I think Vita would be a yeah. great book. Or, or or Orlando is a great one too. Um, you are the only person I know who's ever had the indigo girls in your home. <laughs> Just one of them, though. I, I was. I, I'm sorry. Just, yeah. just one. You're the only person I know who ever had an indigo girl in her home for her birthday. So you want to know what was great about that was it, after she left, right? She went to the local diner and she took a picture of herself with Loris, right? So it's Emily Salyers, who it, it, to me was just she, she's just a phenomenal lyricist. I, I, I always found her songs. They were like. You know, it was like she was speaking what I couldn't say. You know what I mean? She was phenomenal. All of her music was just amazing. The soundtrack of my life, especially especially trying to come out. Um, but she took a picture of herself at the local diner here, the Americana Diner uh, in um, Eatontown. And she tagged us in it. And hands down, that's the because we couldn't take pictures. Remember, we weren't allowed to do video. or whatever. We took pictures with her at the end of the night, but we couldn't really do anything. But hands down, that was one of the coolest things. But after she left and everybody laughed and we were sitting here just being like, you know, we we both kind of grew up poor and we both kind of grew up not knowing where. But the fact that she was in our house, like what in the world happened? She left her eyeglass case up in the master bedroom because she had been tuning her um, guitar there. 
and it had like a bunch of guitar picks and we were like hide it like we didn't want her to come back and get hide that and we still have, we still have them so that's it we stole her eyeglass case so i feel the same way that you do in terms of and i think we're near the same i'm 43 yeah i'm I'm a, I'm a bit of, i'm a little i just turned 50 so i just so oh, a little right, older. Right. i was at your yes i was at your 50th so i feel like indigo girls were such an integral and also melissa etheridge who i say right. all the time with yes i am and i was like oh my god me too melissa um, <laughs> so i feel like uh the indigo girls were such an integral part of my time and i am not like a music guru i refer all music to both eileen and yvonne because they're right, right, right. On it much more than i am but um they were i mean i i ran this morning and and listen and i still have indigo girls in my right right in my own. I mean, there are certain people like Mary Chapin Carpenter was always as I as I got older, I think. And she's she's not gay, but there are certain people who who like Tracy to, Chapman. To oh, me. my God. But that was so that was such a great time, you know, and and I think part of it was because, you know, they were smart. They were writing smart songs that were speaking to like really deep emotions. You know, I mean, we I, I think I think that I would put. I would put some of Emily Sellier's stuff up against, you know, Shakespeare's sonnets. I mean, they're just, they're just wonderful, wonderful, uh, especially the, especially the lyrics, you know, phenomenal no, absolutely, stuff. Absolutely. It was a good night though. That was fun, right? That you were funny fun. because you, you texted me and you were like, you were like, who are you? I had to Google you. <laughs> Why did you have them at your house? But Elisa had gotten it for me for, uh, for Christmas. Oh, no, I was. I also thought you lived in a two bedroom in Brother. Yeah, I know. I know you did. For years, you did. You were really <laughs> funny. You were like, you're like, I got to call my wife. <laughs> um, so Don't judge a book by its cover, right? Yeah, no, I legit. I feel like I thought you once were like, oh, I have a two bedroom in Bradley Beach. And I was like, oh, OK, I have a one bedroom in Asbury. So yeah. <laughs> um, I think that's all my lesbian uh, I did want to say one thing to you. So when I was thinking about, you know, who iconically okay. from, from a lesbian perspective, because I think, I think we had, we talked about Linda Hamilton. Oh my God. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Although yep, I yep. don't think she's gay, but she should be. Yeah. Right. But she's gay in every way, except she's right. So right. 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 Jillian Anderson. So 100%. So, so here's, so this is where I start moving into the paranormal. Right. So it's like, remember Jillian Anderson was X-Files. So it's like, okay. I get it. There's a best of both worlds going on here. Also, the woman uh, from SVU. Riska Hargitay? Yeah, yeah. I mean, how is she not gay? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm befuddled by that one as well. She's well, yeah. Jane, she's Jane Mansfield's daughter. And she was yeah. in the back of the car. She yeah. was in the back of the car when she got beheaded. Yeah. it's, it's There's it's, some paranormal well, stuff going on there for sure. There too, yeah. For yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to chime in for folks that were listening because I was new to it myself. It's Asbury Park Dinner Table. If you've correct. been looking for that on your social media platforms, look for Asbury Park Dinner Table uh, at AP Dinner Table. And all, correct. All social media uh, near you. And everybody donate to this cause. They need money. People need food. Um, this is a cause. That, and you, are you not? Are you a 501 yet? We we, uh, we applied and, and it's uh, it's being expedited. So we're hopeful to get that soon. I should point out that not one meal goes to waste. You know, one way we, we manage this, you know, I, I spend probably six hours a day managing these meals to make sure that every, you know, this is your hard earned money. I want to make sure that it's getting to where we promise it's, it's getting to. And, and, and it really is. 
You know, Nancy McKeon is not a lesbian. So that I can't yes. believe. Come on, just some facts of life. Yeah, you know, and yet Natalie probably is. So that's the weird thing, I right? Think Natalie is. Although I I'll think tell she you is. What, I had a crutch on Natalie. Well, she was um, fun. She was yeah, fun. I totally had a crush on Natalie. And you know what? I just saw that was very good. And then we're going to end it because my son's going to be home any second. Um, Lady of a Portrait on Fire. It's a slow oh, it. It, yeah. um, it was at the showroom, but very, very good. And uh, starring a lesbian. I'm going to I'm going to have to look at that. OK, do you want to give any of your handles before we sign off? Uh, just the uh, just AP dinner table. I mean, that's that's really what we're focusing on. And uh, I do want to give a shout out to Joe, Julie and Allie, because um, it really is a huge team effort. And uh, I'm just really grateful that we all uh, got together and were able to do this. And I want to give a shout out to Ming and Shared Universe who are getting uh, getting us on air and getting these um, podcasts up for us. They're fabulous. And without them, we would absolutely not be doing them. And we want to um, uh, give we we love you, Joe. However, things are going. Yes. Cheers, Joe. Cheers. Later. Thanks. Thank everybody. you, guys.